Fifty. Hello, world. This is the CS Fifty podcast. My name is David Malin, and this is episode zero, our very first. And I'm joined here by CS Fifty's own Colt. Yep. <laughs> Colton Ogden. This is this is an interesting new direction that we're going. Yeah, into. it's one in which we clearly haven't rehearsed. <laughs> yeah. So. But what we thought we'd do with the CS50 podcast is really focus on the week's um, um, current events as it relates to technology, use this as an opportunity to talk about the implications of various technologies and really explain things as it comes up, but really in a non-visual way. And so perhaps I think the topics Colton and I will hit on here will focus on things you yourself might have read on the news that maybe didn't register necessarily, or maybe you didn't really understand how it pertained to technologies that you yourself use. Yeah, and I think this ties well to you know prior when we did CS50 Live. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of the same idea. Yeah, absolutely. Where CS50 Live, when we did it on video, was much more visual. We prepared slides. We actually looked at sample videos and such. Here, we thought we'd really try to focus on ideas. And uh, it'll be up to you to decide if this works well or not well. But we've come prepared with a, a look at some of the past week's news. And why don't we get right into it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things I noticed, actually, is um, I put you know put together this list of topics. But the one thing that I didn't put in here that you actually found and put in here today was something about Facebook passwords. Yeah, so a website named Krebs on Security, uh, the author of this uh, was contacted apparently by some employee, presumably a current employee of Facebook, who revealed to him that during some recent audit of their security processes, they discovered that for like seven years, since 2012, had one or more processes inside of Facebook been storing passwords, users' passwords, like yours and mine potentially, in the clear, so to speak, clear text, uh, not cipher text, which means unencrypted in some database or some file somewhere. Typically, people will use some sort of hashing algorithm to store things cryptographically and much more securely. Indeed, even like ROT13, like rotate every character (laughs) 13 places would have been arguably more secure. And there's not a huge amount of technical detail out there. If you go to KrebsOnSecurity.com, you can actually dig up the the blog post itself. And then Facebook actually did respond. And I think there's a link in Krebs on Security to the Facebook announcement. But to be honest, the Facebook announcement, which is on newsroom.fb.com, pretty, to be honest, it's pretty, you know, nondescript and really doesn't, I mean, it's kind of disingenuous. They seem to use this as an opportunity to talk about best practices when it comes to passwords and all of the various other mechanisms that they have in place to help you secure your password. And yet they really kind of didn't address the topic at hand, which is, well, despite all of those mechanisms, you were storing our passwords in the clear, or at least millions of Facebook users, particularly on Facebook Lite. Uh, a lighter weight version of the app that's useful in low bandwidth locations or where bandwidth is very expensive or slow. So this strikes you sort of as an opportunity for them to w- hand wave over the issue and sort of distract people? Does that sort of how it, this yeah, rubs you? Maybe, I think they'd you know, acknowledge the issue but then use this as an opportunity to emphasize all of the things that are being done well. And that's fine, but I think the world is done a disservice when companies aren't just candid with their mea culpas and, and what they got wrong. I think there's learning opportunities. And as I read this, there's really little for me as a technical person or as an aspiring program to really learn from other than the high order bit, which is encrypt your passwords. But how did this happen? What are the processes that failed? I mean, if companies like Facebook can't get this right, how can little old me, an aspiring programmer, get these kinds of details right, I wonder? So an article more about like how they failed and how they could address it and how other companies could address it, you think that would have been more productive? I think so. I mean, postmortems, as they're called, um, in many contexts, including in tech. And I've always really admired companies that when they do have 
some significant mistake or human error where they own up to it and they explain in technical terms exactly what went wrong, they can still have a more layman's explanation of the problem too, where most people might only take an interest in that level of detail. But for the technophiles and for the students and the aspiring technophiles out there, I think it's just appreciated and these are just teachable moments and all the, I would uh, respect the uh, the persons, the, the company all the more if they really just explain what it is they failed so that we can all learn from it and not repeat those mistakes. If a large company like Facebook is doing something like this, how prevalent do you think this practice is in the real world? Yeah, oh my God. I mean, probably frighteningly common. And it's just if you have fewer users or fewer eyes on the company, you probably just notice these things less frequently. Um, but I do think things are changing. I mean, with laws like GDPR and the EU, the European Union, I think there's increased pressure on companies now, uh, in- increased legal pressure on them to disclose when these kinds of things happen, to impose penalties when it does, to therefore discourage this from even happening. And, you know, I'm wondering why this audit detected this in 2019 and not in 2012 or 2013 or 2014 and so forth. GDPR, did that happen back in 2012? Oh, no, that was in recent recent months, actually, has this been rolled out. Is this related at all to the proliferation now of, like, cookie messages that you see on websites? That's U.S.-specific, where uh, I believe it's now being enforced, because that actually um, has been around for quite some time in Europe. Anytime you took your laptop abroad, for instance, would you notice that almost every darn site asks you, hey, can we store cookies? And honestly, that's a very annoying and almost silly manifestation of it, because because the reality is, as you know, I mean, the web doesn't work without cookies, or at least dynamic applications don't work. And anyone who's taken CS50 or has done a bit of web programming, really in any language, know that the only way to maintain state in most HTTP-based applications is with cookies. So, I mean, we've created a culture where people just dismiss yet another message, and I don't think that's a net positive either. I think I see a lot, too, of the messages that say, by continuing to use this site, you acknowledge that we have access to uh, whatever information using cookies and so on. So I almost think that they do it already and sort yeah. of legally can get away with it by having this message visible. Yeah, I mean, it's like cigarette ads, which um, abroad as well, there was, uh, before the U.S., there was much more of, I presume, um, law around having to have very scary warnings on packages. And companies, you know, somewhat cleverly, but somewhat tragically, kind of steered into that and really owns that and put the scariest of messages and it you almost become desensitized to it because it's just so silly and it's so over the top, you know, smoking kills and then here's the price tag and here's the brand name. Like you start to look past those kinds of details too. So I'm not sure even that is is all that effective, but someone who's looked at this and studied it can perhaps attest quantitatively just how effective it's been. Yeah, indeed. Well, scary to know that uh, our passwords may have been reflected visibly on somebody's server, a big website like Facebook. Um, related to that, another of the topics that you know I sort of dug into a little bit yesterday, or not yesterday, a few days ago, um, was Gmail Confidential Mode, a new feature that they're starting to... Uh, Starting to roll out. Yeah, yeah, I saw that just in March. The, one of the articles on Google's uh, blog discussed this. What, so, do you un- do you understand what the what they're offering now as a service? Um, I'd have to reread back through the article. So, uh, from what I understood, though, it was encrypting not P two P emails, but encrypting the emails. Uh, sort of uh, towards a sort of proxy, towards a center point, and then forwarding that encrypted email to the other person on the receiving end. But I I remember reading in the article that P2P encryption wasn't something that they were actually going to start implementing just yet. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is kind of the illusion of security or confidentiality. In fact, I was just reading after you sent me this link um, on the EFF's website, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who are really 
very progressively minded, security conscious, privacy conscious individuals um, as a group, um, they noted how, I mean, this really isn't confidential. Uh, Google, of course, still has access to the plain text of your email. They don't claim to be encrypting it peer to peer, so they're not being disingenuous. But I think they, too, are sort of creating and uh, implying a, a, a property confidentiality that isn't really there. And what this does for those unfamiliar is when you send an email in Gmail, if you or your company enables this feature, I think it might still be in beta mode or in trial mode. I don't think it's officially fully deployed yet, but yeah. yeah so you can opt into it if you have a corporate account, for instance. It gives you an additional like lock icon on the compose window for an email where you can say that this message expires, sort of James Bond style, after some number of hours. You can add like an SMS code to it so the human who's receiving it has to type in a code that they get on their cell phone, um, and so you, and it also prevents users from delete uh, from uh, forwarding it, for instance, uh, therefore accidentally or intentionally sending it to someone else. But there's the the fundamental issue because you start to condition people potentially into thinking, oh, this is confidential. No one can see the message that I'm sending or that I've received, and that's just baloney, right? And you or I could take out our cell phone right now and and not screenshot but photograph anything on our screen. You could certainly highlight and copy paste it into some other email. And so I think these kinds of you know, features are dangerous if users don't really understand what's going on. And honestly, this is going to be a perfect topic in like CS50 itself or CS50 for MBAs or for JDs at Harvard's graduate schools because if you really push on this, what does confidential mean? Well, not really much. You're just kind of, it's more of a social contract between two people like, okay, okay, I won't forward this. It's just raising the bar. It's not stopping anything. Part of this kind of reminds me too of the point you like to mention uh, in most of the courses that you teach in that, you know, security doesn't really mean much just by virtue of seeing something. Somebody sees a padlock icon in their browser, you know, in let's say bankofamerica.com, that doesn't necessarily mean that anything that they see is secure. Yeah, well that too. I mean, there too, we humans learned years ago, well, maybe we shouldn't be putting padlocks in places that have no technical meaning for exactly that reason. People just assume it means something that it doesn't. So we seem doomed as humans to repeat these mistakes. And, and this isn't to say that I think this is a bad feature. Frankly, I wish that I could somehow signal to recipients of emails I send sometimes, please don't forward this to someone else because it's not going to reflect well or it's going to sound overly harsh or whatever the email is. You sometimes don't want other people to see it, even if it's not the end of the world, if they actually do. But short of writing in all caps, like, do not forward this email at the very start of your message, most people might not realize. So I think having a software mechanism that says don't f- not forwardable isn't bad, but, you know, it should probably be like, please don't forward um, and not imply that this is confidential and no one else is going to see it. Do you um, think that there's some sort of risk involved in making these emails self-destructive in as much as maybe it will bite people sort of in the future when maybe they want to look back on records that are important like this? Could be. I mean, there too, I suspect there are business motivations for this, for retention policies where there might be laws or policies in place where companies do or don't want to keep information around because it can come back to bite them. And so maybe it's a good thing if emails do expire after some amount of time, so long as that's within the letter of the law. Um, But I presume it's motivated in part by that. Um, so this is a software technique that helps with that. And so in that sense, you know, confidential does have that kind of meaning, but it's not secure. And I worry that you put a padlock on it. That doesn't necessarily mean to people what you think. I mean, so many people and kids especially might think or once thought that Snapchat messages are indeed ephemeral and they'll disappear. But eh, I mean, they're still on the servers. They can be on the servers. You can snap uh, screenshot them uh, or record them with another device. So I think we do humans a disservice if we're not really 
really upfront as to what a feature means and how it works. And I think we should label things appropriately so as to not oversell them. Yeah, and it sort of takes unfortunate advantage of those who are not as technically literate as well, um, allowing them to sort of, or at least capitalizing on people taking for granted these things that they assume to be true. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing this, honestly, as humans for like, what, 20, 30 years with DOS. You might recall that when you format a hard drive, um, which generally means to kind of means to erase it and prepare it to have something new installed on it. The ma- the command back then when you used to delete it or F-disk it or whatever it was, was, uh, you know, uh, are you sure you want to proceed? This will erase the entire disk, something like that. And I think it actually was in all caps, but it was false technically, right? All it would do is rewrite uh, part of the headers on disk, but it would leave all of your zeros and ones from previous files there in place. And there too, we said it would delete or erase information, but it doesn't. And so for years, maybe to this day, do people assume that when you delete something from your Mac or PC or empty the recycle bin or whatnot, that it's gone, but anyone who's taken CS50 knows that's not the case. I mean, we have students recover data in their forensics homework alone. You have a background, certainly, in this, too. You did this for a few years. Yeah, um, a couple years, a uh, year or two, yeah, yeah, in graduate school. The uh, If you were to advise our listeners on the best way to sort of format their hard drive and avoid this this fallacy, what would be your suggestion? Drop it in a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> so the, are, you, are, you, are you insinuating that there is no truly safe way to clean a hard drive? No, no, well, in software, Software, it's risky. Um, I think if you really want peace of mind because you have personal documents, financial documents, family documents, whatever it is um, that you want to destroy, physical destruction is probably the most safe. And there are companies that allow you to to, um, physically destroy hard drives. They drill holes in it or they crush it or whatnot. Or you can take out a hammer uh, and try to break through the device. But it's it's difficult, as we've seen in class, when we've disassembled things, you and I, uh, for CS50's Introduction to Technology class, uh, it's hard just to get the damn screws open. So that's the most robust way is physical destruction. You can wipe the disk in software. Frankly, it tends not to be terribly easy. Um, it's easier with mechanical drives, hard disk drives that spin around. But with SSDs, the solid state drives that are purely electronic these days, it's even harder because those things in a nutshell are designed to only have certain uh, parts of them written to a finite number of times. And eventually the hard drive after a certain number of writes or after a certain amount of time, we'll stop using certain parts of the disks. And that does mean you have a slightly less space available potentially, but it ensures that your data is still um, intact. That means that even if you try to overwrite that data, it's never going to get written to because the device isn't going to write to it anymore. Oh, I see. It closes off certain sectors that might have data written. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So you're better off just destroying that disk at that point too. Um, So it's wasteful, unfortunately, financially, but if you want true peace of mind, you shouldn't uh, just wipe it with software. You shouldn't hand it off to someone and assume that you know Best Buy or whatever company is doing it for you is going to do it properly as well. You should probably just remove the device if you can, destroy it, and sell the rest of the equipment. I think this is reflected, too, in Mr. Robot, where he microwaves an SD card that he tries to oh, get off of his... Uh, I don't know if I saw that episode then. This was, I think, the second episode? That's probably the not the right way to do it. <laughs> That's probably just very dangerous. That's probably very... Yeah, I think it exploded in the video. Um, but yeah, yeah, don't put metal things... For our CS50 listeners out there, don't put metal things... <laughs> things in microwaves. Yeah, generally not advisable. No, I think never advisable. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so off the, well, I guess sort of related to the topic of security, there was an article recently published on Gizmodo about how the FCC admitted in court that it can't track who submits fake comments to its database. Yeah, I was reading that, and as best I could tell, it sounded like they had a, a web-based form to solicit feedback on, what was it, net neutrality or, or some topic like that. 
and they claim that they couldn't trace who it was because apparently like there were millions of bogus comments generated by script kiddies or just adversaries who wrote programs to just submit comments again and again and again and again. And as best I could infer, it sounds like they weren't logging uh, maybe who they were coming from. Maybe it's IP address. Uh, it sounded like maybe they didn't even have a captcha in place to sort of force a, a presumed human to answer some challenge like a math problem or what is this blurry text or click all of the icons that have crosswalks in them or something like that. And so they just don't have much metadata, it seemed, about who the users were. So short of looking at the text that was submitted alone, it sounds like they can't necessarily filter things out. It's a little strange to me because it sounded like they do have IP addresses, at least in the article that um, that I read. And the FCC doesn't want to release that for reasons of privacy. But you could certainly filter out a good amount of the traffic, probably, if it all seems to be coming from the same IP. I'm guessing many of the adversaries weren't as thoughtful as to, you know, use hundreds or thousands of different IPs. Um, so that's a little curious, too. Is this at all related to onion routing? And this this is more of my sort of lack of knowledge of Tor and onion routing. But is this sort of how onion routing works in that you can spoof your IP from a million locations? Not even spoof your IP. You just really send the data through an anonymized network such that it appears to be co- that it is coming from someone else that's not you. Um, so, yeah, that's an option. I've not um, used that kind of software in years or, or looked very closely at how it's advanced. Um, but that's the general idea. Like you just get together with a large enough group of other people who you presumably don't know. So N is large, so to speak, and all these computers are running the same software. And even though you might originate a message, uh, an email or form submission, that information gets routed through N minus one other people or some subset thereof so that uh, you're kind of covering your tracks. It's like in the movies, right? When they show a map of the world and like the bad guys data is going from here to here to here and like a red line is bouncing all over the world. That's pretty silly, but it's, it's actually that kind of idea. You just don't have software that visualizes it. And that's why it looks, that's why they call it onion routing, because it's like layers of an onion kind of going oh, all it? around. I never thought I th- about it. I thought that that was why it was called onion routing. Maybe. That sounds pretty compelling. So sure, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, apparently, per the article, the API logs contain uh, dozens of IP addresses that belong to groups that uploaded millions of comments combined. So to your point, it does sound like oh. that indeed is what happened. Oh, so, so that's presumably how they know minimally that there were bogus comments. Yeah. And but hard to distinguish maybe some of the the signal from the noise. Folks' concerns were that people were sort of um, you know creating these bogus comments that were propaganda, essentially um, you know malicious maliciously oriented comments. Yeah. Um, well, this is pretty stupid that sounding then because honestly there are so many like available APIs via which you can at least raise the barrier to adversaries right using captchas so that theoretically you can't just write a program to. Uh, answer those kinds of challenge questions a human actually has to do it. So you might get bogus submissions, but hopefully not thousands or millions of them. Yeah. No, it sounded like a uh, more like a technical... Um, I'm gonna wanna, I don't want to stretch my words here, but it sounded like there was a little bit of potential technical illiteracy involved. At least could be. This, potentially. It could be. I want to try to sound dip- as diplomatic as good possible. Good thing they're making all these decisions around technology. Uh, yeah, exactly, right? And I have a picture. Uh, okay, I'm not going to go in that direction. I but, don't think we can show pictures on this podcast, yeah. though. <laughs> um... Another topic sort of related to this um, was, and John Oliver Starr did a, a skit on this related to robocalls, is, well, robocalls. Um, 
And for those that, uh, do you want to maybe explain what robocalls are for our audience? Yeah, I mean, a robocall is like a, a call from a robot, so to speak, really a piece of software that's pretending to dial the phone, but is doing it all programmatically through software. And it's usually because they want to sell you something, or it's an advertisement, or it's a survey, or they want to trick you into giving you their so, your social security number, or that you uh, owe taxes. I mean, they can be used for any number of things. And sometimes good things, you might get a reminder from a robocall from like an airline saying, hey, your flight has been delayed an hour. That's useful. And you might invite that. Um, But robocalls have a bad rap because they're often unsolicited and because I have not signed up for someone to call me. And indeed, these have been increasing in frequency for me, too, on my cell phone in particular, which theoretically is 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 unlisted. And I added the do not track thing years ago. But that's really just the honor system. You don't have to uh, honor people who are on those lists. They just suppose have to check the list, right? But they can still call you afterwards. Yeah, and I mean, certainly if the problem is with bad actors, then by definition, those people aren't respecting these lists in the first place. So it's the good people who you might want to hear from who you're not because uh, they are honoring the do not call lists. I've noticed that I've received a great many as well. Most oh, yeah, from, sorry about those. <laughs> <laughs> most of them from 949, which is where uh, I, I grew up in California, mm. and that's where the bulk of all the messages are coming from. But, well, per- seem to be coming from. Well, I've noticed to be, this, too. Right, I get yeah. them from 617, which is Boston's uh, area code, too. I, they're doing that on purpose. I just read this, and it makes perfect sense now in retrospect why I keep seeing the same prefix in these numbers, because they're trying to trick you and me into thinking that, oh, this is from a neighbor or someone I know in my locality. No, it's just another obnoxious technique, to be honest. I live in Massachusetts now, so I know that it's not a neighbor, definitely, if they're 949. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, the thing is, I don't know anyone's number now, so <laughs> yeah. if I don't, it's not in my contacts. I know sure. it's probably a robocall. So, no, it's really awful. And, I mean, I think one of the primary reasons this is becoming even more of a problem is that making calls is so darn cheap. I mean, you and I have experimented with Twilio, which is a nice service that has, I think, a free tier but a paid tier, too, where you can automate phone calls, hopefully for good purposes. Um, And I was just reading on their website that they actually deliberately, though this certainly is a business advantage for them, too, charge minimally by the minute, not by the second, because they want to charge even potential adversaries at least 60 seconds for the call. Though, of course, this means that if you and I or writing an app that just needs a few seconds of airtime, we're overpaying for it. But it's a hard problem because calls are just so cheap. And it's this is why spam has so proliferated, right? Because it's it's close to zero cents to even send a bogus email these days. And so those two are dominating the, the internet too. And thankfully, co- companies like Google have been pretty good at filtering it out. You know, we don't really have a middleman filtering out our phone calls. And it's unclear if you'd want a middleman, you know, a software picking up the phone, figuring out if it is legit, and then connecting them to you. Right. It feels a little invasive and time-consuming, too. And it's kind of alarming just how easy it is for your average person, your average you know, beginning programmer, to set up an automated robocall system. Yeah. This is illustrated, I mean, again, back to the John Oliver segment, this was illustrated on there where they had literally had, they were showing a clip of somebody who wrote a little command line script yeah. or something like that. Um, and even John Oliver made light of it in the skit where he said that his tech person took only 15 minutes to, to sort of bomb the FCC yeah. um, with phone calls. But I mean, they, they, the demonstration showed, you know, writing a simple script, 20 phones just light up on the table. Yeah. And this can be scaled and, you know, however large you want to go with it. No, and fun fact, I actually did this in CS50 once a few years ago and uh, have not done it since uh, because this 
blew up massively uh, on me. Uh, long story short, and we have video footage of this if you dig through several years ago, maybe if it's 2018 most recently, it's probably 2014, give or take. Um, in one of the lectures mid-semester, we were talking about web programming and APIs, and I wrote a script in advance to send a message via text, but technically via email to text. It was sent through what's called an email to SMS gateway that would send a message to every CS50 student in the room. And at the time, I foolishly thought it would be cute to say something like, where are you? Why aren't you in class? Question mark. And the joke was supposed to be because if anyone were, you know, cutting class that day and weren't there, they'd get this message from CS50's bot thinking, oh my God, they, they know I'm not there. When really everyone else in the classroom was in on it because they saw me running the program and they knew what was going to happen. And it was pretty cool in that all of a sudden a whole bunch of people in the room started getting text messages with this, I thought, funny message. But I had a stupid bug in my code and um, essentially my loop... Uh, sent one text message the first iteration, then two text messages the second iteration, then three text messages the third iteration, whereby the previous recipients would get another and another and another because I essentially kept appending to an array or to a list of e recipients instead of w blowing away the previous recipient list. It's like a factorial operation? Well, a geometric series, technically, uh, geometric or series. if you did, a, I did think I did out the math. If I had not hit control C pretty quickly, to cancel uh, or to um, interrupt the process, I would have sent 20,000 text messages and they were going out quickly. And I felt horrible because this was enough years ago where some people were still paying for text messaging plans. It wasn't unlimited, uh, which is pretty common, at least in the US these days, to just have unlimited text or iMessage or whatever. Um, so, you know, this could have been costing students 10 cents to 25 cents or whatever. So we offered to compensate anyone for, for this. And I did have to shell out a $20 bill, I think, to one student whose phone I had overwhelmed. But there too, it was also phones were old enough that they only had finite well they, they always have finite memory but they had terribly <laughs> little memory and so when you get a whole bunch of text messages back in the day it would push out older text messages and I felt awful about that oh. kind of overwhelming people's memory so anyhow this is only to say that even hopefully good people with good intentions can use robo calls or robo texting uh, accidentally for ill and if you're trying to do that deliberately maliciously it's just so darn easy so solutions to this then don't let me in front of a keyboard <laughs> <laughs> do we so uh, there was a little bit of reading i was doing um and it might have been in the same article but cryptographically signing phone calls is this something that you think is possible yeah i mean i don't know terribly much about the phone industry other than it's pretty backwards or dated in terms of how it's all implemented I mean, I'm sure this is solvable, but the catch is how do you roll it out when you have old school copper phone lines, when you have all of us using cell phones on different carriers? It just feels like a very hard coordination problem. Um, and honestly, now that data plans are so omnipresent and we decreasingly need to use voice per se, you can use voice over IP, so to speak. You know, I... I wouldn't be surprised if we don't fix the phone industry, but we instead replace it with, you know, some equivalent of WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger or Skype or Signal or any number of tools that communicate voice but over software. And at that point, then yes, you can authenticate. Okay, that makes sense. Especially if this keeps scaling, I feel like this is an eventuality. I imagine, yeah. I mean, even now, right? Like, I don't get calls via those any of those apps. Well, some of them, the Facebook ones I do, uh, from people you, that aren't in your contacts. Sometimes it just gets goes to your other folder or whatnot. Um, but I'm pretty sure you can prevent calls from people who aren't on your whitelist on those apps like Signal and WhatsApp that do use end-to-end -end encryption. 
Sure, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. So um, we'll sh- we shall see. There was a... Uh, so away from the, um, I guess, the security, which has been a major theme of the podcast, uh, towards something a little bit different, actually. Um, and this is pretty cool, and I'm... Uh, particularly for me, because I'm into games, but Google actually announced a brand new streaming service that people are really talking about. Yeah, that's really interesting. You probably know more about this world than I do, since I, I am a fan of, like, the NES, the original. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's called Stadia, and um, I've done a little bit of reading on it, not terribly, because there's actually not that much about it right now. Okay. It just was announced maybe two or three days ago. And actually, Kareem, um, one of our team, actually kindly int- uh, showed it to me because I wasn't aware. This was going on at a live event. Okay. Um, but it's a it's a it's essentially an idea that's been done before. The companies have done this sort of, we process all the games and then we stream the video signal to you and you play and there's this back and forth. My initial sort of qualm about this is that we're, init- we're fundamentally dealing with streaming latency. Yeah, of and course. Y- it's, I find it highly unlikely that we can, especially for geographically distant locations uh, amongst servers and amongst um, consumers, that we can deal with less than 13 milliseconds of latency uh, in between uh, a given frame and the input uh, on someone's machine. Maybe right now, but this seems inevitable. So I, I kind of give Google credit for being a little bleeding edge here. Like, this probably won't work well for many people, but it feels inevitable, right? Like, eventually we'll have so much bandwidth and so much so uh, low latency that these kinds of things seem inevitable to me, these applications. So I'm kind of comfortable with it being a bit bleeding edge, especially if it maybe has sort of lower quality graphics, more Nintendo style than Xbox style, which at least with the Wii, the original Wii was like a design decision. Um, I think it could kind of work. Um, and I'm very curious to see how well it works. But yeah, I mean, even latency, we for CS50's IDE and for the sandbox tool and the lab tool that support X-based applications, which is the windowing system for Linux, uh, the graphical system, doesn't work very well for animation. I mean, even you, I think, implemented Breakout for us a while ago. A while back. And tried it out. And, eh, it, you know, it's it's okay, but it's not compelling. But I, I'm sure there are games that would be compelling. Yeah, I know that in their examples they were doing things like Assassin's Creed Odyssey, you know, very recent games that are very high graphic quality. Um, I mean, I would like to, I would definitely like to see it work if, if yeah. possible. No, I think that would be pretty cool. Um, one less thing to buy too, and it hopefully lowers the barrier to entry to people. You don't need the hardware. Um, you don't need to connect something else. You don't need to draw the power for it. I mean, there's some upsides here. I think. I think especially if they are doing this at scale, and Google already does this surely, but you know they have a CDN network that's you know, very, and it's very maybe a US centric thing first, and then can scale it out to other countries. Um, maybe the latency between you know any given node on their network is, or the gap is small enough such that the latency is minimal. Yeah, as long as it's less than 13 milliseconds. That's the one in 60, one's over 60, which is the, typically games are 60 mm. frames per second. That's the amount of time it needs to be um, to process input input and feel like it's a native game. Well, to be honest, I mean, this is similar to their vision for Chromebooks, which, if you're unfamiliar, is a relatively low-cost laptop that is kind of locked down. It pretty much gives you a browser, and that's it. The presumption being that you can use things like Gmail and Google Docs and Google Calendar, even partly offline if you're on an airplane, so long as you pre-open them in advance and sort of cache some of the, the code. Um, I mean, that works well so long as you have good internet. But we've chatted with some of our high school students and teachers whose schools use Chromebooks and it's not great when the students need to or want to take the laptops home. Maybe they don't have or can't afford their own internet access at home. So there's certainly some downsides. 
But I don't know. I feel like within enough years, we'll be at the point where internet access of some sort is more commodity like electricity in the wall. And so long as you have that kind of flowing into the house, that it'll be even more omnipresent than it is now. Sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, uh, I would definitely like to see it happen. I hope it does. Yeah, so... Well, I think that's all the topics that we sort of had lined up. We covered a nice sort of breadth of them. Um, this was this was great. I like this format. Yeah. No. Hopefully, uh, you're still listening because uh, <laughs> I feel like we should offer a couple bits of advice here. I mean, one on the Facebook password front. I mean, even I did change my password. I don't know if mine was among the millions that were apparently exposed in the clear, and it's not clear that any humans noticed or ca- or used the password in any way. But changing your password is not a bad idea. And as you may recall from CS50 itself, if you take in the class, you should probably be using a password manager manager anyway and not just picking something that's pretty easy for you to remember better to let software do it instead um, and on the robocall front I mean there's a couple defenses here I mean even on my my phone I block numbers once I realize wait a minute I don't want uh, you calling me um, but you can also use things like Google Voice right where they have a feature which seems a little socially obnoxious where Google will pick up the phone for you and they will ask the human to say who they are then you get on your phone a little preview of who it is so it's like your own personal assistant that's kind of interesting. I actually didn't realize that was a thing. It's an interesting buffer, but it's kind of obnoxious, yeah. right, to have that that in, mi- intermediate. You could have a whitelist, surely, though. That For sure. Yeah. No, for so for unrecognized calls, but you know, I've, I've, people tried rolling this up for email, though, years ago, and I remember even being put off by it then. If I email you for the first time we've never met, you could have an automated service bounce back and say, oh, before uh, Colton will reply to this, you need to confirm who you are and click a link or something like that. And at least for me at the time, maybe Maybe I was being a little, you know, uh, um, you know, a little presumptuous, but it just felt like, ugh, this is why is the burden being put on me little, to solve this also problem? A little high and mighty, potentially. Yeah, and, but I mean, it was a interesting software solution, and that's what Google Voice and there's probably other services that do the same thing. So you can look into things like that. Um, and as for like uh, Stadia, I'll be curious to try this out when it's more available. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's worth noting that uh, podcasting is how CS50 itself ended up online way back when. Um, long story short, before CS50, as Colton knows, I taught a class at Harvard's Extension School, the continuing ed program called Computer Science E1, Understanding Computers and the Internet. And we, in 2005, I believe, started podcasting that course, which initially meant just distributing MP3s, which are audio files of the lectures. And then I think one year later, when the video iPod, of all things, came out, we just started distributing distributing uh, videos in QuickTime format and Flash format, probably. Definitely MOVs. Uh, Yeah, of the course's lectures. Uh, And it was really for the convenience of our own students who might be uh, commuting on a train or maybe they're on a treadmill. And it was just kind of trying to make it easier for people to access the course's content. And long story short, a whole bunch of other people who weren't in the class online took an interest, found the the material valuable. And certainly these days, there's such a proliferation of educational content online. But it was because that course, we started podcasting that when I I took over CS50 in 2007. It just felt natural at that point to make the course's videos available online as well. And even though we've kind of come full circle now and taken away the video uh, and replaced it just with audio, I think it really allows us to focus on the conversation and the ideas without really any distractions of visuals or, or need.
need to to um, rely on, on on video. So hopefully this opens up possibilities for folks to to listen in as opposed to having to be wrapped attention on a on a screen. And what I like is this is a more current events focused talk too. Yeah. You know, we have so much other content. It's nice to you know sort of have a discussion on the things that are relevant in the tech world or otherwise. Um, you know, it, it fits this format very well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so this was episode zero of CS50's podcast. We hope you'll join us soon for episode one, our second podcast. Thanks so much for CS50's own Colton Ogden, whose idea this has been, and thank you for spearheading. And thanks, David, for, uh, for you know, sort of leading the way here. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to you all soon. Bye-bye.